Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. This week we'll be kicking off Season 6, join the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe, as they take a pleasant holiday to a formerly radioactive island being overrun by alien invaders in The Dominators. These package holidays, you know, they're just... <laughs> they weren't, they're not what they used to be. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. First off, I will give you a recap of the story. Episode 1. A fleet of spaceships are making their way through space, and one of them detaches from the group to land on a nearby planet whilst the rest keep going. An elevator descends from the ship, and two strangely armoured humanoid figures emerge from it. One of them, Navigator Rago, indicates that he plans to set up a mining facility on the planet to provide his people energy. His counterpart, Probationer Tova, is against the idea as it could incite the local populace to rise against him, a fact that Rago brushes off by saying that they will destroy any resistance. Rago then orders Toba to send out something called the Quarks to map out a drilling site. Elsewhere, an underwater vehicle is making its way through the water, but its occupants are bored due to the lengthy nature of the trip. One of the group says that it would have been faster if they had used a travel capsule, but the pilot of the vehicle says that they would have required a permit for one, which they couldn't get due to the forbidden nature of their trip. The pilot, whose name is Collie, then announces that they have reached their destination, the Island of Death, which is completely irradiated and has been uninhabited for nearly 200 years. However, the three passengers are less than impressed with his storytelling due to the fact that there is a permanent observation post there to keep an eye on the radiation levels. Cully tries to win them over by talking about the illegal nature of their trip and the fact that they are seeing the island in person as opposed to in a picture. As Cully argues with one of the passengers, he doesn't notice the collision warning beacon and the ship runs aground on the island. After making sure everyone is alright, Cully says that they are stuck. The leader of the passengers does a scan of the island and notes that the radiation levels appear to be zero. After running the scanner again, he and his two companions say that Cully has either landed on the wrong island or has lied to them and they decide to go outside to explore. Cully goes after them to try and get paid, and one of the other passengers says that he saw people in the distance, but they don't look like anyone from the observation post. The passengers decide to go ask for help, and they leave a fretful Cully to chase after them. They approach the alien ship, and Toba orders the Quarks to kill them, a fact that seems to annoy Rago. The TARDIS lands with the Doctor feeling tired from his mental projection displayed to Zoe, and he says that they have arrived on the planet of Dulcus. He assures his young companions that there is no need for alarm, as the locals are very friendly. Meanwhile, Cully returns to his ship, but drops down to play dead when he sees Toba order a quark to destroy the ship. The resulting explosion is heard by the travellers, who rush to find its source. They come across a ruined house that the doctor says was destroyed by some sort of atomic blast, and when they look inside, they see that it is a war museum of sorts, as most of the exhibits are of weapons, which seems to contradict the doctor's earlier statements about it being a peaceful planet. Zoe calls her attention to a trio of bodies in one part of the room, but after taking a closer look, they see that they are dummies. Zoe asks if the Doctor took the radiation readings before they left the TARDIS, as the devastation reminds her of the nuclear test sites on Earth. This confuses the Doctor, who says that all violence was prohibited centuries ago, and Jamie suggests that they leave, but they come face to face with three individuals wearing hazmat suits. In the observation post, Educator Balan and his assistants Teal and Kando are perplexed by the negative radiation readings coming from the travellers, who have been placed in a decontamination room. They are let out of the room, and Balan informs them that the island has been irradiated for 172 years, 
and he and the others are part of an annual expedition to monitor the readings from the observation post. The travellers are taken aback by Balan's nonchalant attitude towards their statement that they are time travellers, and the doctor asks him why the island is irradiated if nuclear weapons were abolished. Balan and Kando fill them in and she informs them that the Dulcian Council authorised experimentation using atomic power, but it was viewed to be too destructive. As a result, the island was quarantined from the rest of the planet, and all further atomic testing was forbidden. The doctor then wonders what happened to the radiation. Meanwhile, back at the alien ship, Ragod berates Tova for his destruction of Kali's ship. He then asks for a report, and he is told that the Quarks have gridded out the drilling sites, and so they go to inspect them. One of them happens to be beside the TARDIS, and Toba offers to have the Quarks destroy it, but Rago says that it will be a waste of time. Unbeknownst to them, they are being watched by Cully, who then makes his way to the ruined house where he is met by Teal. Cully demands to be taken to his superior, and they leave just before Rago and Toba arrive to inspect another of the drilling sites which the Quarks have put inside the house. They inspect the weaponry in the museum, and Rago is alarmed when he thinks that the Dulcians could have made more advanced weaponry since the manufacture of the ones on display. He then says that they will need to find some of the local populace to monitor them. Back in the observation post, Balan suggests that maybe the TARDIS absorbed the radiation, but the doctor says that its sensors would have registered it. Teal brings in Cully, who tells them about the events on the island, and Balan assumes that both he and the travellers have been playing a trick on him. He says that he will contact Cully's father, Senex, who is the senior director on the council, and while he does that, the doctor questions Cully about the aliens. He tells them about the drill site near the TARDIS, and overhearing Rago and Toba's discussion about destroying it. The Doctor and Jamie rush off to see what's going on, while Zoe elects to stay behind. Cully begs Balan to listen to him, but he refuses to do so until he has first spoken to Senex, but there is something stopping the communication. Out on the surface, after ensuring that the TARDIS is safe, the Doctor and Jamie investigate the drill site, and spot some tracks leading away from it, which they follow. They eventually come across the alien ship, and Jamie spots Toba approaching with a pair of quarks which are small, blocky robots with spiked heads and arms that fold out from the centre of their chest. One of the quarks asks in a childlike voice, Shall we destroy? Episode 2 Under Toba's orders, the quarks lead the Doctor and Jamie into the ship where they are presented to Rago. They identify their race as Dominators, and they order the duo to stand by the wall, but Jamie refuses. One of the quarks advances on Jamie and uses a repulsor beam to pin him and the Doctor to the wall. The section that Jamie is on then becomes an examination table. Rago informs the Doctor that they always examine any new species they encounter, and he begins an analysis of Jamie. He finds him to be inferior due to his genetic makeup and brain power, and he elects not to examine the Doctor, saying to Toba that the result would be the same. Toba wants to destroy them, but he reluctantly follows Rago's instructions to prepare them for manual labour. Rago outlines the qualities that they need in slaves, one of which is intelligence, but only enough to do their work and not to rebel. The Doctor overhears some of their conversation and relates to Jamie that the Dominators will be organising some sort of tests to find out what they are looking for. At the observation outpost, Balan manages to get in contact with Senex, but the line is too poor, so Senex tells Balan to send Cully and the travellers to the capital, but the signal gets cut off before Balan or Cully can respond. Cully goes off on a rant about the Council's MO of debating everything before making a decisive decision, but he nevertheless takes Zoe with him in a transport capsule, which is a two-person rocket, back to the capital. Cully barges into a council meeting and Senex is sent for whilst Cully argues with the council over his claims about what he saw. However, the conflict is cut short when Senex arrives who then dismisses the council members so he can speak to Cully and Zoe alone. Senex berates Cully for his trips to the island of death, saying that he is well aware of his activities but chose not to make it public lest Cully get more notoriety. 
He questions Zoe about her appearance on the island, but she can't corroborate Cully's claims, leading Senex to think that Cully is making it up. He then leaves and Cully says that they will need to get proof, but first says that they will need to get Zoe some local clothing so she doesn't stand out when they try to gain access to a transport capsule. Back on the Dominator ship, Doctor and Jamie observe Toba as he goes about preparing the test. They realise that they can move freely again, but are stopped from escaping by a quark who alerts Toba. He then brings the doctor to the test, which consists of a dismantled puzzle in a glass box. He is told to put his hands into the box, and once he does, they are shocked by the quark, and Toba says that the shocks will continue at regular intervals until the puzzle is reassembled. However, the strain proves to be too much for the doctor, and he is taken away by Jamie. Once they are out of earshot, the doctor reveals that he failed the test on purpose, so as to convince the dominators that they are not a threat. He tells Jamie to play along, as they are summoned back by Toba, who gets him to take another test. This time they were required to stand up, but when they do so, they receive an electric shock from the floor. Rago returns and disputes Toba's claims over the stupidity of the Doctor and Jamie, saying that the technology found in the museum indicates an intelligent species. He then addresses the Doctor, saying that he doubts the poor intelligence that they have shown during the tests, and he tells him that he will take over the testing. He takes them to the weaponry museum and tries to get one of them to use the laser rifles. When they pretend not to know how to use them, he turns it on them, and under intimidation, Doctor gives him a story saying that the clever ones invented the weapons, but forbade others to use them, causing the rest of the population to dislike them. Once again, Toba desires to destroy them, but Rago says that it would be a waste of time and instead tells him to stay away from them. Once they are gone, the Doctor and Jamie ponder a message they overheard from Rago to his fleet commander, saying that there was material readily available on the planet. Jamie assumes it to mean that there must be a resource on the planet that they need, and he suggests that they go back to the observation outpost. In the observation post, Balan and Teal are discussing the disappearance of the radiation, with Balan saying that the only logical answer is that the radiation dissipated after the time elapsed since the explosion, but Teal and Kando say that it must have something to do with the alien ship. However, Balan refuses to accept this theory. The Doctor and Jamie then return, and Balan sends them to the capital via a transport capsule, saying that Zoe went on ahead with Cully. After they leave, Kando and Teal discuss the Traveller's story and once again Balan to investigate with them, which he reluctantly agrees to do so. They eventually find the ship, but their presence is detected by the quarks, and Rago decides to monitor them. The trio decide to look inside the ship to find any signs of the robots both Collie and the Travellers mentioned, but once inside, Balin is stunned by one of the quarks, and Teal is subjected to the examination process. Rago says that he is different to Jamie, meaning that they have found a suitable workforce after all. He then orders Toba to take the quarks to go investigate the observation outpost. They record all the available data from its computer, but after they leave, Tober orders the quarks to destroy the building. They begin firing on it just as Zoe and Cully return, who find themselves trapped in the burning building. Episode 3 Rago arrives and orders the quarks to cease firing. He once again berates Tober for his bloodthirsty nature and then leaves, ordering that any survivors are to be captured and sent to him directly. Meanwhile, Cully and Zoe try to get out of the burning building, but come face to face with a quark. Back at the capital, one of the council members brings the Doctor and Jamie to the meeting room, but he is unable to answer any of their questions. Instead, he requests that they wait for Senex to arrive to answer their questions. They then decide to wait for him, and after he leaves, the travellers ponder Zoe's current status. Senex arrives and informs them that she left along with Cully, most likely to go back to the island. They then argue about the veracity of their claims about the existence of the Dominators, with the Doctor informing them about their experience on the ship. Senex asks them to go over things in more detail, which annoys Jamie as he is eager to rescue Zoe and has grown frustrated with their pacifism. On board the Dominator ship, 
the two aliens discuss the results of the tests done on Teal. Rago does not think that he and the others will make a viable labour force, but he decides to test them by putting them to work at one of the drill sites. He then orders Toba to dispatch a quark to the observation post to capture any relief force or visitors. He then orders the trio of prisoners to be sent to join Zoe and Cully, who are guarded by a pair of quarks. Before he leaves, Rago reminds Toba not to report any disobedience from the prisoners, and that he is not to punish them unless told so otherwise. Meanwhile, while they are waiting to be moved, Zoe suggests destroying the quarks using weapons from the museum, a suggestion that Cully enthusiastically agrees to, but before they can do anything, the three prisoners are brought to them, and all five of them are moved towards the drill site. Once at the drill site, Toba gives the prisoners their instructions, and Zoe, in a show of defiance, tricks him into revealing the purpose of their task. After Toba leaves, Zoe tries to convince the others to try and overcome the quarks in order to escape, but only Cully supports her as Bala and Kando say it is not their way. Teal, however, seems to be on the fence as to what to do, but they are ordered by the quarks to get back to work. In the council chambers, the Doctor and Jamie have finished their retelling of their experiences, and the Doctor suggests sending someone to the island to confirm their story. Senex, however, asks why they should feel threatened when the Dominators release them. He says that Dulcus has nothing of value to an invading force, and that the disappearance of the radioactivity is more than likely a coincidence. Jamie snaps and insists that an armed party be sent to the island, but the council again refuses. The Doctor suggests contacting Balan to see if anything new has happened on the island, and when Senek's videos in, they see the devastation caused by the quarks, and see one of them lying in wait near the transport capsule entrance. The Doctor and Jamie then rush back to the island. En route, Jamie points out the transport capsule that they are in is set to automatically return them to the observation outpost and straight into the hands of the quark patrol in there. The Doctor then starts to tinker with the circuitry in an effort to reprogram the flight controls. He manages to get her under control and pilots to a safer location. After a bumpy landing, they set out to find Zoe and the others. On the Dominator ship, Rago and Toba are sending reports back to the fleet when a quark arrives to give an update on the prisoners, saying that all of them, bar one, are showing signs of fatigue. It contradicts Toba's assumption that it is Teal by saying that one of the females is the one that is still standing, and Rago orders the quark to work them to the point of exhaustion before returning them to the ship. At the dig site, it is revealed to be Zoe that is still going strong, as she continues to plan an escape with Cully. She tries to get into the museum to get one of the laser rifles, but is forced to leave as there is a quark patrolling inside. She goes back to working with the others, where Cully has managed to convince Teal to join them. He tells them about a nearby fallout shelter that they could use as a potential hiding spot if they successfully escape, but unfortunately, he doesn't know exactly where it is. However, they decide that the quarks need to be dealt with first, and Cully feigns an injury so that he can be dismissed from the work party. He manages to sneak into the museum where he gets one of the laser rifles and takes aim as Zoe lures the quark into his line of fire by feigning an injury as well. However, he is stopped from firing by Jamie, who fears that he might hit Zoe instead. Cully gives out to him as the opportunity has passed, as the quark rounds up the prisoners and begin to herd them back to the Dominator ship. Meanwhile, the Doctor has been found by Toba, who puts him with the other prisoners. He notices that Cully is missing and takes a pair of quarks with him to retrieve him. However, he disobeys Rago's instructions and orders the quarks to destroy the museum with Cully and Jamie inside. Jamie returns fire with the rifle and manages to destroy one of the quarks. Toba is enraged at this defiance and orders the quarks to begin firing again. Cully gets hit by a falling ceiling beam and Jamie takes him away from the burning building. Outside, Toba watches with glee as the building falls apart. Episode 4 Back at the Dominator ship, Rago is angry when the quarks report Toba's orders at the museum. 
The doctor is upset about the potential loss of Jamie, but Rago tells him to keep quiet as he orders the quarks to return the natives to the drill site and to make sure it is clear of quarks to efficiently drill at the site. Rago orders Tobit to stay behind and he proceeds to criticise his actions since they landed, but Tobit criticises his leadership in return and both men question the other's suitability to be a dominator. They both order a quark to arrest the other, but Rago's command is the one that is obeyed. He then gives Toba one last chance and tells him to go back to the drill site. After Toba leaves, Rago turns his attention to the Doctor and Zoe, who he begins to question about Dulcian society. Outside, Toba takes Balin away and instructs Teal and Kando to get back to work, but once they are alone, they discuss whether or not Cully got away. Cully and Jamie did in fact manage to reach safety in the fallout shelter that Teal had earlier mentioned. Jamie tries to use the monitoring periscope to take a look at things on the surface, but it is covered in debris from the destruction of the museum. He then notices that the air is getting stuffy, and together he and Cully realise that the ventilation unit is blocked and could lead to their suffocation, causing them to try and clear it. Back on the Dominator ship, Rago uses Zoe as leverage to get the Doctor to answer all his questions. He informs Rago about Senex and the rest of the Council. Rago asks about the transport capsules, but the Doctor reminds Rago that the observation outpost was destroyed and there is no way to summon another transport capsule to their current location. Rago orders the ship to be readied in order to leave, but the Doctor convinces him to use the transport capsule he returns in instead, as it will draw less attention. Zoe then questions the Doctor on his change in attitude, and he says that if they move off the island of the ship, then they will not be able to inspect its power source for clues as to what the Dominators are looking for on Dulcus. He also says that he would not be able to continue their search for Jamie. Rago releases them, but orders them to accompany him to go investigate the capsule. Out of one of the drill sites, Balin sets up the drill for the quarks to use and Toba orders them to start. One of the quarks then relays a message for Toba to report to Rago at the doctor's transport capsule. Rago informs Toba that he is to remain behind to oversee the drilling process, whilst he goes to meet Senex and the council to further investigate their potential as a slave labour force. He warns Toba not to kill anyone while he is away. As they are talking, Zoe reveals her knowledge about the fallout shelter and says to the doctor that maybe Jamie and Cully managed to get there. Before they can discuss it any further, they are led away by Toba. In the fallout shelter, Jamie and Cully manage to open the hatch and spot a quark guarding Teal and Kando. Jamie says that the quarks are the key to the Dominator's power and they decide to try and overpower them. They reconnoiter the area and see how many quarks are there in total, counting nine altogether. The last two that they counter the ones with Balin. Jamie manages to lure one of them away by throwing rocks at it and leads it to an ambush point where Cully pushes a large boulder down on top of it, crushing it. Its destruction is registered on the main ship and Toba takes the quark guarding the Doctor and Zoe with him. They realise that Jamie and Cully are the ones most likely behind the quark's destruction and use the diversion as a chance to investigate the ship. Zoe ponders at length as to the nature of the power source as it also seems to power the quarks and the Doctor gently mocks her verbose language. They start to look for the power cells, deducing that the power source is electromagnetic in nature. However, they discover that the power cells are radioactive, which accounts for the disappearance of the radiation on the island, but it then raises the question as to what the Dominators are drilling for. Toba interrogates Balin, who says that he doesn't know who destroyed the quark, and an infuriated Toba orders the quarks to kill any unaccounted for individuals on the island. Back at the capital, the council are once again in session discussing what to do when Rago and his quark burst in. The council demands that he make an appointment through the proper channels and their repeated bureaucratic insistencies anger him to the point he orders a quark to kill one of them. Rago then repeats his demands to provide it with a slave labour force, revealing that they need to fulfil the menial roles done by the quarks who are the Dominator's chief weapons. Back on the drill site, Toba has Teal tortured until Kando reveals 
that the ones responsible for the destruction of the quark were most likely Jamie and Cully. He demands that they tell him where they are hiding. Back on the ship, Banner reveals what has been going on to the Doctor and Zoe. The Doctor asks about the history of atomic testing on the island, and Banner says that all radioactive materials used in the process were gathered from the other side of the planet. The Doctor begins to ponder about the unique drilling grid that the quark set up, but before he can discuss the matter any further, Toba enters with Teal and Kando. He demands to know where Jamie and Cully are, and he says he will kill them one by one until they answer him. He orders Balan to be killed to prove that he is not bluffing, and he tells the Doctor that he will be next unless he reveals Jamie's location. Episode 5 Rago enters and stops Toba from killing another of the prisoners. He berates Toba again for disobeying his orders, saying that he has squandered much of the Quark's power reserves and jeopardised the success of their mission. He orders him to recall the Quarks to finish the drilling to plant something called the Seed Device, and he tells him to take the prisoners with him to set explosives in the holes already dug. Meanwhile, the recall of the Quarks allows Jamie and Cully to return to the fallout shelter. Once there, they use some of the food rations left behind before going out to try and destroy another Quark. They use the now uncovered periscope to take a look topside, and they see Toba with three Quarks leading the prisoners to the central drill hole. They start to come up with a plan to try and free the prisoners. Up on the surface, Zoe asks the Doctor what the Dominators are trying to do, and he suggests that they are trying to place something into the Earth as opposed to taking something out of it. Their conversation is interrupted by Jamie and Cully, who succeeded in knocking over the Quark guarding the prisoners, and then obscuring its vision by placing a sheet over its head. This proves to be a smart move, as moments later Toba and the other Quarks arrive, but the guard Quark says that it was unable to see which direction the prisoners went. He orders the Quarks to seek and destroy, but the recently arrived Rago countermands the order and berates Toba for again giving in to his temper and squandering the Quarks' depleting energy reserves. He orders the drilling to recommence, but he gives Toba some satisfaction by telling him that the fleet command has stated that Dulcus and all his inhabitants are to be destroyed by the planned explosion. This conversation is overheard by the Doctor and Jamie, who relayed the plan to the others. The Doctor then states that the Dominator's plan is to plant a radioactive bomb that will irradiate the whole planet, which they will then salvage to use as fuel for their fleet. The Doctor says that they will need to get the seed device somehow and defuse it, and Jamie suggests digging a horizontal tunnel to cross the shaft being dug by the quarks. Once the seed is dropped down the hole, they should be able to intercept it on its descent and defuse it. The Doctor says that they don't have the manpower to dig the tunnel in time, and Jamie and Collie say that they can continue to disrupt the Quark's work to buy them more time. Zoe maps out the tunnel entrance, and the Doctor changes the frequency of his sonic screwdriver to act as a cutting torch so that they can get through the layer wall where they need to start digging. Zoe and the Doctor use the medical supplies in the shelter to help craft some explosives to help Jamie and Collie deal with the Quarks. Jamie and Collie start to stalk the Quarks and manage to destroy a patrol of trio. Their destruction is registered on the ship by a startled Rago. Toba orders the Quarks to go and destroy the two attackers, but then thinks again on it and orders them instead to continue drilling. Rago arrives and says that they only have eight Quarks left, but Toba advises that two are currently drilling so they should have enough power to see the job through to the end. Jamie and Cully continue their guerrilla raids on the Quarks and manage to destroy one of the drilling Quarks, which buys more time for the others who are still at least six feet from the drill shaft. Rago takes command of the remaining Quarks and leads them after Jamie and Cully. Cully is injured as they try to avoid the quarks and Jamie returns him to the fallout shelter, while the quarks take time to recharge their power levels. The doctor examines Cully's wound and informs him that it is a temporary paralysis. Zoe informs them that the quarks have finished their drilling and Rago is putting the seed device down the shaft. Jamie manages to break into the drill shaft at the last moment and the doctor catches the device as it is dropped. Unfortunately, it is sealed, which means the doctor can't defuse it, leading them to think that the plan has failed. 
The Doctor, however, says that if they can get it off the planet, then the explosion from it wouldn't cause any lasting harm. He sends Zoe and Jamie back to Latardis and the Dulcians back to the capital via a transport capsule before he takes off for the Dominator ship. He manages to get the seed device into the airlock, but he is nearly trapped by the closing doors. However, he manages to escape and he rushes back to Latardis, where Jamie and Zoe are anxiously awaiting his return. Their happy reunion is short-lived as a tremor nearly throws them all to the ground and the Doctor explains it is as a result of the explosives in the drill shaft. They then watch as the Dominator ship explodes as the seed device goes off. The Doctor then says that they have nothing to fear as the explosion in the other drill shafts will only result in a volcanic eruption localised entirely to the island. Jamie politely reminds the Doctor that they just so happen to be on the island and when a startled look, the Doctor pushes his young friends back inside the TARDIS as lava starts to flow onto the island. End of the story. Thank you very much. And throughout all of that, even though I've watched the episode, I just have this image of teeny tiny Ferengi just running around <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing the Dominator's business. Oh. I am imagining like this like army of tiny Ferengi taking over Deep Space Nine and Odo just being like, nah, nah, like, <laughs> fuck you, like, we're not doing this. Early retirement, please. <laughs> Kira, we're moving to Bajor. Come on. <laughs> Someone's been watching DS9 lately. <laughs> so, once again, another story recapped. And once again, we find ourselves at Trisha's trivia spot. So, what news for us do you have this week? So this week we have the Dominators. The air date for the Dominators is the 10th of August to the 7th of September 1968. Writing credit for this story goes to Norman Ashby, who isn't actually a person. Uh, Norman Ashby is a pseudonym for Mervyn Haseman and Henry Lincoln, who also wrote The Abominable Snowmen and The Web of Fear. They felt they were unfairly treated by the production team and so requested to have their names removed from the credits. This was originally meant to be a six-part story. Five-parters are quite rare. Very rare. But it was edited down to five episodes by script editor Derek Sherwin. Now, I could go into a lot of detail around what was happening in the background between Heisman and Lincoln and working with Derek Sherwin and all that kind of stuff, but it's a bit complicated and there's a lot to it. There's stuff to do with copyright and who owns the quarks and merchandising and licensing and whatever i would strongly recommend if you're interested the dvd for the dominators actually has in their making of section they go into everything that happened with the script and how it became five episodes and the working relationship between heisman and lincoln who got along very very well and how they worked with derek sherwin and doctor who which did not go well it's really interesting to watch because you have derek sherwin and mervyn heisman both being interviewed and giving their sides of the story it's really quite interesting basically Sherwin thought they were being too slow and was like come on come on the two guys wanted to make a good story they did an interesting concept they'd obviously had great success with um the yeti and the great intelligence and they really wanted to sort of play into that and Sherwin was like look we have a tv show to make come on get the finger out and eventually they were just like look you're asking for too many changes. We don't want to have anything to do with it. You'll actually be really disappointed, I think. Why so? So originally, Heisman and Lincoln were also planning another story. 
which was I can't remember what they said it was called, but it was basically the return of the Laird, which would have been Jamie returning home and taking up his seat as Laird. Derek Sherwin, you're an asshole. And it would have had the Yeti and the Great Intelligence in it. It oh would have been their, oh their 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 trilogy would have oh. ended with Jamie at home in Scotland facing the Great Intelligence taking up his seat as Laird. Oh, and... that sounds amazing. Oh, you absolute asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I heard something before. I don't know. Um, I can't remember where it was. Maybe it might have appeared in that um, special that you watched on the DVD. Mm-hmm. Were the Quarks meant to be like a potential replacement for the Daleks? Yeah. Um, yes and no. Um, from a show perspective, eh, not really. From a toy production perspective, yes, very much so. Um, hence why they've got like little bits that pop out. And it was very much meant to be a marketing, branding, toy sales thing. And that's actually discussed on the DVD because you had Heisman and Lincoln who got a toy deal out of it. But then you had the BBC using them in a comic strip and there was sort of an ownership rights issue between the two and it just became this big whole thing. Uh, Derek Sherwin is very um, blunt (laughs) in the documentary on what he thinks and actually so were some of the other people who were interviewed like um, uh, costume people and uh, one of the makeup artists. They're very blunt about what they thought about the quarks and the general consensus was a quark is not a Dalek. It does not have the same impact as a Dalek. It was never going to be the big, you know, toy success that Heisman and Lincoln were trying to market it as. The more I think of it, the more Heisman and Lincoln sound like a buddy like you know, they sound like you know, partner cops like in an eighties action movie. <laughs> Well, apparently it was, again, this is all in this documentary. Which I've, I said I'm not going to go into it and I'm now practically describing the whole thing. But um, apparently the, the reason why they became a writing duo is it was actually Henry Lincoln's wife reached out to Mervyn Heisman and said, look, oh, he's not writing. Can you do some stuff together? And they actually got on really well together. That's cool. And they became a really good writing partnership. And Derek Sherwin had told them they would never work for the BBC again after their interactions with who and that wasn't accurate they never worked on who again but they did continue to work for the bbc and it seems the two of them had a really good relationship um and the abominable snowman and web of fear were good so i'm gutted we didn't get the their third story um of that even if it was like a big finish special Mm. like that would have been amazing that sounds absolutely great yeah because they obviously knew like at the time when they were planning to write that story, they knew when Jamie was going to be leaving and stuff, and that was going to be his leaving story was him taking up his position as Laird, which I knew would upset you, which is why that, that makes you seem really mean. But yeah, it's the trivia, and that's this is what we do. Yeah, I, I was going to say something. And I realized that's going to be a massive spoiler, so no, yeah, uh, no, I'm going to leave it off. Uh, also, I giggled. Uh, you can edit this out if you want. I giggled because I saw your message there. My phone is on silent. And I just see, look up, motherfucker, from you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just had your eyes down typing the whole yeah. time I sat here waiting for you. Cool. But I was sat here for about five minutes before you answered me. Uh, like. well, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. <laughs> it was like naked gun. Sorry, stop firing the gun while you're talking. I can't hear you. 
The director for the story is Morris Barry. We have discussed Morris before. He previously directed The Moon Base and The Tomb of the Cybermen. This is his final Doctor Who directing credit. Uh, again, according to the DVD, eh, people weren't the biggest fan of Morris as a director. Um, he tended to act out what he wanted you to do. And the actors are like, no, 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 I, I do that. <laughs> I do that part. You do, you do directing part. I, I do the acting part. Um, Morris passed away uh, back in 2000. So this story was kind of inspired by the increasing pacifist movements in the 60s and the sort of hippie culture type thing. And Heisman and Lincoln were posing the question of if you had a 100% pacifist society and they encounter an aggressive force, what happens? Like, how do they, when you're a 100% pacifist, and you encounter an aggressive force, how do you deal with it? And they were sort of looking on this, like, if the whole planet was that way, you have no wars, you have no weapons. And I think it's an interesting concept um, as a starting off point. It is, because I'm just realising now that this is like a 30-year predecessor to Demolition Man. Hmm. Yeah. Like, it was like, you know, the, it was, it was it the suspect refuses to obey us, what should we do? Because <laughs> use a louder and clearer tone. <laughs> Um, Doctor Who is known for its quarries. Uh, this one had two. There was two different quarries used for the location filming. Uh, what did you think of the Dulcian costumes? So, okay, Cully and crew, they're very kind of Greco-Roman type styling in like terms of mm-hmm. kind of short, shorty toga type stuff. Uh, although, I just imagine that they were all wearing uh thal dresses it may come as no surprise the actors weren't big fans of the dulcian costumes um arthur cox who plays cully particularly walked in saw it hung up and kind of went ah fuck (laughs) (laughs) why am i wearing a dress (laughs) um an interesting thing i i wondered about was like does your dress whether you're male or female, does your dress get longer the higher positioned you are in society? Well, Because the council members all have very long robes and so does Bal and his is very long as well. Yeah. Collie's is very, very short. Uh, Teal's is, I think, about the same as Collie's, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and the girls are up around the hole. But I, I wonder if it's like meant to like sort of symbolise your position in society, how long your dress is and they said the sense rights of the stupid dress code <laughs> <laughs> but it sort of reminded me of um speaking of star trek which we, we mentioned earlier um marina sirtis tells this story about how counselor troy suddenly gained intelligence mm-hmm. after chain of command and how like when she had cleavage she had no brain and then the cleavage went away and suddenly all her brains came back and i sort of imagined it that like you know, when you can see the men's legs they have no power yeah. No legs, all the power. <laughs> I don't know why my brain went there. No, it, <laughs> it, it makes as much sense as anything, I suppose, when it comes to... <laughs> uh. So Chris Jeffries doubles for Patrick Troughton in all of the location filming. Patrick wasn't there for any of that. So the doctor running with the bomb thing, that wasn't him. Um, and in some of the scenes, you can kind of tell that it's not Patrick. Yeah. Um, particularly, obviously, like watching on DVD on a big screen, it, it 
you can kind of tell. It's like when you see when you see Shatner's stunt double in fight scenes in the, in the original series Trek. It's like, well, the guy's like a half a foot taller and fifty pounds lighter than him. Or um, the guy who doubled for Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone <laughs> when they do the zipline thing. It's like, it's like, yo, ten year old kid, ten year old kid, fifty year old man, ten year old kid, ten year old kid. I I, st- I still think the two worst stunt double interactions are one are from Shanghai Nights mm. where. Jackie Chan's uh, his character's sister her stunt double has facial hair and I think it's for Police Academy 4 uh, mm. Bubba Smith uh, Hightower the very tall black yeah. cop uh, his stunt double is white <laughs> yep in a scene where the thing drives around the corner he's a white stunt double yep. so speaking of <laughs> <laughs> you've captured their stunt doubles so speaking of Patrick Troughton, so we talked about Troughton's passing away when we first talked about him as an actor on the show. And we mentioned how he sadly passed away at a convention. Um, and it was actually shortly after his birthday and they were planning. So he passed away on the Saturday morning and on the Saturday evening, they were planning on having like a birthday party for him. And he'd actually requested that they play the Dominators. Some people have taken this to mean that it was his favourite story. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. Possibly one of the few that was completed by that point. Yeah. Um, but it, it sort of, it, it all ties back into that thing where it it was his last requested story the weekend that he that he passed away. On to the rest of our cast. So as Colly, as I previously mentioned, we have Arthur Cox. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting appearances for Arthur, though it will be a long time before we see him again. His next appearance is not until Matt Smith's first story, The Eleventh Hour. Wow. Big gap. That's a huge gap. (laughs) His non-Who credits include Here Were the Wake, Fahrenheit 451, Dixon of Doc Green, The Avengers, UFO, The Sweeney, Yes, Minister, Inspector Morse, and Agatha Christie's Proro. Arthur passed away actually just in April of this year. Senex is played by Walter Fitzgerald. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include The Six Proud Walkers, Big Guns, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, (laughs) which every time I say that, the name of that film, my brain always does like, stereotypical Irish accent. Yes, like, same here. Darby O'Gill and the little people. <laughs> it's like, same here. No, I don't actually talk like that. Stop it. Um, Disney's Treasure Island, Paul of Tarsus and Zed Cars. Walter passed away in 1976. Rago is played by Ronald Allen. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Ronald. We'll see him again in The Ambassadors of Death. And can I just say to the makeup artist who worked on Ronald for the story, they don't do a whole lot with the makeup. They just sort of like emphasize lines on the face and stuff like that. I did not realize that was the same person until I looked it up. I didn't realize he was the same guy from the Ambassadors of Death. I haven't seen Ambassadors of Death in a very long time, so I will... He's the main um, scientist in the Ambassadors of Death. Cool. Uh, It'll be, what, well, maybe... Six weeks? No, no. Eight weeks before we get there, I think. Ronald's non-Who credits include A Night to Remember, Danger Man, Compact, The Avengers, Crossroads, The Comic Strip Presents, and Bergerac. Ronald passed away back in 1991. 
Toba is played by Kenneth Ives. Again, this is Kenneth's only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include the TV miniseries of The Last of the Mohicans, Play for Today, The First Churchills, Canterbury Tales, The Lion in Winter, and Zed Cars Again. Lastly, for the Quarks, uh, the Quarks were played by children from a nearby acting school. There's lots of little boys running around in mm-hmm. weird, bulky costumes. They were voiced by a lady named Sheila Grant, who was doing a childlike voice. Something of like a... It's described as like something of a public school voice. And basically, she was doing a childlike voice. And then it was run through, obviously, a computer. or It's run yeah. through a system and, and adjusted ever so slightly. Um, and to your point, they were created as an attempt to create a monster with the same merchandising potential as the Daleks. And spoiler alert for later, nah, they, yeah. they, they, they don't really match up. <laughs> uh, but still, like, you know, because like, we had the battle of the Daleks versus the giant Christmas tree ornaments. So <laughs> we, <laughs> we could have had the battle of the Daleks with the mace-headed gonk droids. <laughs> that's actually what they look like yeah. it looks like someone took a mace and just glued it to a gunk droid from Star Wars <laughs> uh. I'm going to assume that a quark action figure while very rare is still probably not that valuable <laughs> Well, a Doctor Who quark action figure, though very rare, probably not very valuable. A DS9 quark action figure, now that might be slightly different. <laughs> was it, I just imagine like Armin Shimmerman like just kind of going, no, for the last time, I wasn't one of those quarks. I was. <laughs> you know, I was actually talking to some of the guys from Mission Log and, and some of their Patreon supporters the other day, and we were talking about like your know, ways star trek maybe have ripped off doctor who mm-hmm. and you and i have mentioned the cyberman before but yeah. uh one of the patreon subscribers paul mentioned that um you know is doctor who where they got the idea for the trill and this idea of like is the trill symbiont meant to represent like the doctor the doctor's essence basically and then the new host is the new body coming forward and i'm like i don't know maybe possibly um but can you imagine if they got like as opposed to getting quark from you know quarks is in the scientific particle yeah. can you imagine if they got if iris Stephen bear and the other creators of ds9 got the idea from this random episode of doctor who <laughs> well they're short annoying <laughs> <laughs> uh. anyway yeah on to Quark. our characters discussion. <laughs> yeah, a, I know, but like, I, like, I love Quark. Quark is one of my favorite characters. I actually worked with a guy who uh, his nickname was Quark because, like, <laughs> he, like, whenever he used to, like, he used to really clean up at poker, and he would do like a little kind of cackle. Like, and people just said he like he looked like a furry, which when he would just, just call me Quark, bitches. <laughs> just imagine him ending every game just going double. <laughs> <laughs> Or whatever the rules are to that game that Quark plays with Jadzia. I don't can't remember what that one was. No, Tango. That was it. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. on to Doctor Who. <laughs> Not on to Deep Space Nine. If you want to listen to people talk about Deep Space Nine, listen to Mission Log. They're yeah. talking about Deep Space Nine. <laughs> so, 
character discussion. Yes. We have the Doctor, the companions, we have one prominent character for this story, and then we have the villains. So, I will put it to you, Paddington. What were your thoughts on the Doctor for his opener of Season 6? So, I, I classify this story, The Wheel in Space, and the next one, as a sort of a trilogy for the Doctor being a bit of a varying levels of being an asshat and <laughs> possible spoiler for next week <laughs> possible possible as i said varying levels so you know um so he like, he is a bit of a smart arse here like you know when he comes like to you know like you know, jamie we have to pretend to be you know like, we have to play dumb he goes all right fair enough and like, he just goes well that should be too hard for you now should it and it's just like you're some fucking prick <laughs> um or when like you know zoe is Zoe is trying to, you know, process something in the way that she does, at which point he just kind of gives her a, use smaller words, Zoe, <laughs> type fucking spiel. Um, but what I will say is that Patrick Trone does, does a great performance here. Like, he has great, you know, comedic acting in terms of his reaction to the varying shocks from the, the test. He... We get to see like his righteous indignation type thing because even though like, he himself like you know espouses to be a pacifist, it's like the you know, for the love of God you know you have to see like a bigger picture here. You know, there is such a time where action does need to be taken. Um, I know I actually didn't. I enjoyed that sequence with mm. Jamie and Zoe and I'm oh, sorry Jamie the Doctor and the Council. I really enjoyed that, and I'll probably get more into it when I talk to Jamie's side of things. But no, it's great seeing him kind of like doing science stuff, you know, like trying to rationalize out motives and everything by science. And at the, I suppose at the end, all of his, you know, cocksure swagger comes a cropper when it's like, you know, ah, we're perfectly fine here. Yes, but here's where the lava is coming. It's like, oh my word. He just like bundles them back in. Um, so like, I, I, yeah, he's like, he's recovered from my assessments of him last week. Still, kind of, you know, I want to smack him across the side of the head, going, "Leave Jamie and Zoe alone." But um, no, I think it was a good performance this month, or sorry, this week. This month. This month. Yeah. This month. Um, I agree with the performance. I think you know Troughton, he's really quite consistent, but there are some stories that sort of suit his style of acting better, and I think this is definitely one of them. We see great physicality, as always. His facial acting is on point. Um, I think Troughton did a great performance. As for the Doctor himself, we do have some good stuff with him. Again, like the sciencey stuff is great. Um, though, you know, again, people who claimed a sonic screwdriver became a multi-purpose tool in New Who. This is their second time seeing it, and it's cutting through a wall. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, we get to see him be a bit childish. Like, first of all, this man loves the beach. Like, any time he sees a beach... Yeah, practically sure. loses his mind. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm at the beach. Like it starts out like you know he pulls out a deck chair and he gets James to start blowing up a beach ball. <laughs> yeah, like he loves the beach. Like, <laughs> dude, just find a tropical island and stay there. We also get to see like, you know, he's so sure of himself. Like the idea for him that the Dulcians slipped back into a aggressive or even like just not 100 percent passive society. He's kind of like no that no they don't like, he seems so disappointed hmm. that, like when he considers that they may have done he's like but no they're they're peaceful and he's so determined to believe it and to have everyone else believe it 
and you can tell that like he probably puts a lot of a lot of hope into cultures like that yeah. and the idea that one may have slipped back seems to really upset him well yeah because like it's I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the rescue you yeah. know when like there was like you know but the didonians were peaceful people i wonder what happened at which point it was like i must go investigate mm. whereas here it's sort of a, like a well no no that's not the way i remember it no 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 can't be true no 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 um i do i do wonder and i might get more into this um what one of our prominent characters later on like the doctor has been to this planet before and yet they find it really weird that he's from space yeah like, but i think but i think this is like um like but didn't they say like that they like they don't seem to really bat an eye at the fact that he's a time traveler but it's well the people the people on the research station don't yeah. bat an eye the council does though oh yeah in terms of the negatives for the doctor in this story again there's a little bit of like the way he sort of plays jamie where again jamie doesn't want to go somewhere and he doesn't want to do something and he sort of has no choice because the doctor doesn't give him one um and we do see him deferring to jamie a lot more than zoe which i'm not surprised by given his previous interactions with victoria i wasn't expecting a 100 percent turnaround on that um but i would like to have seen him bond more with zoe like when they're going to check on the tardis he's like oh jamie come with me Oh Zoe, do you want to come? Like it, it's a complete like second thought, and I like the fact that she decided. She's like, no, I, I'm going to stay here. Thanks. You, like that yeah. was her choice. I I, I actually did quite enjoy that uh, part, and I suppose I'll, we'll speak to it when we get to Zoe's side of things because it's independence as opposed to yeah, he's not deciding for yeah. her. Um, now she may have just picked up on the fact that he clearly didn't want her to go with them. But she still made that choice for herself. Like I would have liked to have seen him bond more with Zoe because this is a sciencey story, yeah. do you know? And yeah, at the beginning it's him and Jamie, but then like in the second half it's him and Zoe. And I don't think we saw them bond as much. I wanted to see them sciencing things out together, as opposed to what seemed to be the case, which is when they were in the ship, it was him not really paying any attention to her, really. And like you said, kind of making fun of her a little bit for the way her mind works. And then when they were in the bunker, it seems like she was just doing what he was telling her to do. Like she understood what she was doing, but like she was just doing an action that he was. It wasn't them working together. I wanted them to work together. Do you know? It kind of like this goes sound really weird, but it kind of reminds me of um, Danger Mouse and Penfold in the sense of Danger Mouse would be trying to figure out something, and Penfold would be kind of go like, "You mean like this, Chief?" At which point it's like, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> Yeah, do you know, like, I, I want it to be more like the way he was with Anne Travers, do you know, where they had a really good bond mm. and a really good working. I kind of wanted it to be more like that. Um, now, we do still have plenty to go and it, it may happen like that in the future, but I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't get a little bit more of that. Um, and he's still a little bit of a dickhead. Yeah. Um, like he was last week, which when you consider the fact that these events technically run one into the other. Mm. It's not surprising. He's still a bit of a dickhead. <laughs> Sorry, but like, uh, as you were speaking, I completely agree with you there. I've had the Danger Mouse team to run through my head. And I'm like, Danger he's the greatest. He's the <laughs> <laughs> No, fuck, I have to listen to this after that. <laughs> or that after this. Um, but yeah, no, like, I suppose like that's the thing like, that we kind of, we sometimes forget is that like some of these stories literally bleed into each other. Like one minute after the other, you know? Mm. And... I suppose like that in that way, 
Like I, I, I was, I'm trying to remember what story it was where one led right into the other, and the, the one of the characters had such a different personality. It was like, like where the fuck did this come from? Can't was it a Troughton or was it a Hartnell? I think it's a Troughton. But yeah, no. But as like so, like we've kind of like, he is still a bit of a dick, but he's kind of a bit of a lesser one uh, compared to last week. Mm. Um, we talked about actually pacifism just kind of came up in this, and while we're still on the doctor, do you think or what are your thoughts on his final action, which is to throw the explosive d- device onto the Dominator ship? Because a lot of people say like that, you know, you know, Troughton's doctor is the one that kind of like invented the pacifism of the doctor and passed it on to whoever. Okay, first of all, no, that was Hartnell in the Dalek Invasion of Earth, where he made a very special point about weapons. <laughs> like, hello. Um, well, that being said, he did kind of like he's like he. Well, we had the discussion about you know his final instruction to the the Robo Men, which was to destroy all the, the Daleks. But then again, I guess was but no, but but, but yeah. that conversation that he had um, in in the underground tunnels where he talked about yeah. you know when violence is necessary and when it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um. So yes, people who, cl- who people who credit that to tr- credit the pacifism to Troughton, liars, all of you, <laughs> go back further. In terms of his actions here, not specifically Troughton's doctor, but just the doctor in general. My thing has always been, and I think this carries over with Troughton, is the doctor prefers a non-violent solution. Hmm. However, he is not an idiot, and he is aware. That there are certain times when the only solution is a violent one. Yeah. Once he realized that there was no way to disarm this thing, he had two choices. Well, he had three. One would be, you know, throw it into the ocean or something so that it wouldn't at least go into the planet's core. Yeah. Which would still be devastating to the planet, though. And, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people, millions maybe, would still die. Option two would be to put it in the TARDIS, therefore destroying his own ship, mm-hmm. leaving them stranded, which, you know, he's a wanderer. He's not someone who stays in one place forever. So that was a no-go. Also, you have no idea what impact a weapon like that would have in the TARDIS, which yeah. is, you know, with the time rotor and everything. Yeah. Who knows what could have happened with that? And so his only other option is, well, they're fucking leaving. And they're the ones who did this in the first place. They were going to destroy this entire planet. Give them back their weapon. And in my mind, you know, it's a case of with the options available to him, he made the best choice. Yes, it was a violent choice. Violent by, you know, association. He didn't actually blow them up, but he knew they'd get blown up. But at the same time, he had no other option. Do you know, and that's really where the doctor and violence line up. If he has no other option, yeah, because like I've I've seen like we've seen one or two instances where like there is a malicious intent behind the doctor's violence, which mm. I wouldn't say like a huge level of kind of safety at stake. But here it's a case of look, it's two hostile aliens versus the fate of an entire planet. He probably will take that action with him, but I'm pretty sure he'd sleep easier than if he had left, you know, if he'd try a, a different pacifistic approach, you know? Yeah, and again, to the people saying, like, oh, he's a pacifist, well, like, he gave Jamie bombs 
that are quite powerful. And yeah, Jamie was going to use them against the quarks, but there's nothing to say that Jamie wouldn't have accidentally taken out one of the dominators with them either. Like he's perfectly willing and happy. And I think we discussed this in Web of Fear and we may have discussed it in a few stories before that. In Evil of the Daleks, he didn't want to get the police involved. But we can see later on, like when we get to Web of Fear and some other stories, when there is a need, he has no problem deferring to military or using violence in some capacity. Maybe not fisticuffs, that might not be his thing, you know, but, you know, using his mind to create something that will save the day with a potentially violent end for someone. And I think that anyone who says the Doctor is a pacifist has never actually paid attention to the show. Mm-hmm. Pacifism is the preferred path. Yeah. There should always be there should always be a better option. Yeah. But there isn't always. You know, in an ideal world there's always a better solution. But we don't live in an ideal world and sometimes you have to make the tough call. And in this case that's what he did. Cool. Yeah, no, I I, th- I just thought it was an interesting talking point based on you know this one. Mm. I, I think like you know, th- th- this story, just by its very nature, sort of pushes that to you. Where you know it's the same thing we saw with the Thals in Daleks. They were a pacifistic pacifistic society. They were one hundred percent against it, and they had to be shown in that case by Ian that you know sometimes you have to stand up for yourself yeah you know pacifism can really only go so far and that's kind of disappointing when you think about it you know pacifism is a is an ideal state of being but it doesn't always work in reality no if you want to stay alive yeah there there are there are times where a a stand has to be taken Uh, what the fallout of that stand may be you're only going to find out once you take that stand Mm. Serious discussion. I <laughs> know, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, but like, no, but like we had. I suppose if we went back to our talk about the massacre and like how that still resonates to this day, you mm. know that type of thing. Yeah. Um. So moving on to our companions of the piece. Indeed. So we have Jamie and Zoe, mm-hmm. our main companions, and then we also have Collie, our companion of the week. So, uh, will we start off with our skirt wearer as opposed to the Dulcian skirt wearer? You mean Jamie, right? Because yeah. Zoe wears pants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Uh, this is the Jamie I want to see. Hmm. It's him using his natural strengths and his natural leadership as well to take charge, assess situation, get shit done. There is no woe is me in Jamie in this story. It's all very much, ah, feck, you were going to destroy the thing and I distracted you. Okay, cool. No, no. Okay, let, let's get back on track, right? That, that was your plan? Cool. Let's let's keep going with that. You know, um, you know, there was no sort of like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so-. like, he said sorry, but then he moved on with it. Do you know? I, I actually... Like, you know, you're watching and kind of going, oh, you know, Cully could have taken out the quark. I completely agree with, like, Jamie's thing because Cully, like, to, to our mind, Cully has never fired a weapon in his life. Mm. 
And granted, it's scoped. He still has never fired a weapon in his life. I don't think Collier would have actually ever pulled the trigger, if I'm being honest. I think he wanted to. Hmm. But I don't know if he actually could. Um, and we can discuss that more when we get yeah. to Collie. Yeah. But I think the thing with Jamie is that he realises that Collie had planned to do something. He fucked it up. And as opposed to wallowing in that or whatever, he's immediately like, okay, cool. What can we do? Mm. Give me the gun. I'll do it. Yeah. You know, it's immediate sort of, okay, what, what's the next step? What's the next step? I think him being paired with the doctor at the start, I actually almost didn't like because he's he's the idiot in that dynamic in that situation they even refer to him as the stupid one yeah do you know um i do think it was interesting though how they explained jamie's increasing knowledge over time like we've seen that like the fact that jamie understood how the ventilator fans Mm. worked in the underground bunker um or you know some other things that jamie's aware of you know i love that they actually had the dominators say you know, oh, he has a simple mind, or whatever. But there's been a vast improvement recently. <laughs> like I like how they sort of said, "Yeah, we know we've been making him smarter." That you know, this is it. Mm-hmm. But still, in that, he was sort of the idiot foil for the doctor, and I would have much rather see you know if Zoe had gone with the doctor, and you've got like the two of them together for the story, and Jamie being with Collie from the fr- from the start. Yeah. And trying to figure it out, the two of them together from from the get go, um, and seeing Jamie's leadership from that perspective. Because hmm. you actually made a very good point there. Like, when was the last time that you can remember um, Jamie doing like a like I suppose like a Highlanderism, as in the sense of like he like he hasn't called anything like a strange beastie, he hasn't equated something to like a supernatural phenomenon or anything like that it's actually been a very it's been a good long while it's, it's been a while and like i said i mentioned last week that like he understands certain concepts quite well mm. or at least you know he's got a passive understanding of them like clearly his knowledge is increasing and what he may not always understand what the doctor is saying you know you know two out of every five things the doctor says jamie's nodding intelligently and not nodding stupidly Mm-hmm. The other three, he's nodding stupidly because he's no idea what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> but you know, it would have been zero out of five. Yeah, and and now it's you know ramped up to to two out of five. Cool. How about you? Any uh, other thoughts on Jamie? No, I, I like I love Jamie in this story. This is like this is a this is like a proper Jamie story. Like he, it's it's all like I always kind of find like Jamie, like I don't find it funny, but like Jamie's progression, his character arc, is amazing. Because you start off, he's like the he's the he's the ceremonial piper for the his liege lord's clan, mm. and like you know, but he's not like he's not required to be tactical. He's just required to stand on the battlefield, protect his lord, and play the the battle dirge type thing. Over time, he becomes like an actual kind of leader of. You know, he just becomes a leader flat out. You know, mm. uh, he's capable of independent talk. He's able to. Get, capable of independent action he's grown quite resourceful he's he has a lot of ingenuity he's a lot of intuition it's it's great and as we said we said the whole thing of the kind of the the more understanding of the, the greater cosmos i suppose through the travels with the doctor 
it all kind of leads to this sort of thing where it's, you know, assessing the situation, taking charge, not running roughshod over whoever he's with, but kind of using them to help him out. Like, you know, because himself and Collie, they work really well together. That's mm. because, like, Jamie doesn't try to boss him around. Yeah, I think one thing I've noticed with Jamie that I was a bit concerned about at the beginning is we've, saw about, we've talked about the Jamie McCrimmon effect, right? Which is essentially the Worf effect, although it doesn't yeah. come up as often for Jamie as it does for Worf. No. Um, where he fights a foe and gets defeated in order to show how powerful it is. Yeah. Right. It doesn't actually come up that often with Jamie. What I liked in this story is Jamie used a laser gun as a laser gun. Yeah. You know, they didn't have him being like, oh, I'll use it as a fucking sword or a club or whatever. Like, he used it the way it was intended to be used. I think it would have been very easy and very sloppy writing, but certainly very easy writing to have him still behave like the Highlander, to still behave as if he was in the 1700s. Um, But they don't. They have him grow and adapt and you know, maybe not a hundred percent understand, but like he uses the technology around him even if he doesn't a hundred percent know what it's gonna do. Yeah. Like he didn't have a clue what that gun was gonna do. No. He could have blown but up. But he his knows face. it's a gun and yeah. he knows that if you pull the trigger it does something. So I really enjoyed his um sequence in the council chamber. Mm. Because it was like you know kind of just pointing out that you know, okay, like your ideals are noble, but they're also kind of, in this scenario, they're futile. Because you'll just talk and talk and talk and nothing will happen before you know it will be too late. I think that council chamber is like Jamie's worst nightmare. Yeah. Oh, it's just... <laughs> like when Jamie has nightmares, it's of having to sit through meetings like that and getting <laughs> nothing done. And he's just like, no. Like Jamie is a is by far a get up and go. And we see here as well, you know, we've seen it with... A little bit with Polly, we saw it big way with Victoria, but I do like the fact that he's like, no, hold the phone. I need to get back to Zoe. Hmm. Like, what the hell? And that protective streak is very much ingrained in him. I you know, I quite enjoy that because, like, yeah, he had a sort of a weird sibling rivalry type thing going on with Zoe in last week's story. Hmm. But I suppose like it's his kind of viewpoint is that he is the long-serving member of this crew. So it's his job to make sure that the 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 bairns, I suppose, or the the new arrivals are looked after. I think he also realizes that the doctor sees him as the muscle, and I think Jamie recognizes that that's his role. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. And you know, like I said, he even used to do it a little bit with Polly, not as much as Ben, um, but that's because Polly had Ben to advocate yeah. for her um, in in those situations. Not that Polly needed it, but obviously, <laughs> yeah. you know. It's nice to have an advocate in your corner in those situations. Um, and I loved his, I love the fact that that's immediately passed on to Zoe. Yeah, no, I saw just another really strong performance um, by Fraser uh, mm. in the story. So, how about we go on to Zoe? Yeah, um, not a bad first outing for Zoe. Not great. No. Not bad. One of the things I do love is I love how easy she is with Collie. Mm. Uh, we mentioned last week that Zoe isn't, she's not the most personable of people. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you know? She is a little bit reserved, um, a little bit sort of, she finds it difficult to read a room sometimes. 
but I do love how easy she is with Collie. Like she she's very relaxed with him and they get along very, very well. And I'll talk about that more in a second when we talk about Collie. She did have one screamy moment. But a building was falling on her. Yeah. That that that's okay. That that's an understandable screamy moment. There's a building falling on you. <laughs> um I love her reaction to the outfit. <laughs> yeah. She's literally kind of like what the hell is this? <laughs> I was like, it's not very practical, is it? <laughs> and it adults wear this, you say. <laughs> well, it is basically a swimsuit with a see-through sarong. Yeah. That's literally all it is. I would have liked to see her science it out a bit more. Hmm. There was a hint of her working out how the Dominator ship is powered. But again, it kind of came across as the Doctor taking the piss out of her. Like, I would have liked to have seen her finish her train of thought he cuts her off and she's like oh well you know clearly they have to do this and they absorb the radiation and he's like so clearly they need a really strong power it's like that's not where she was going dickhead she was trying to rationalize out what could give them the power they need what kind of resources would they need for what it is that they do and she was trying to figure it out and he just sort of cuts her off which is a bit shit and i would have liked to have seen like you know he has to explain to her what the collector does like the radiation collector and I would have liked to have seen her science that out. Yeah. Do you know? Like, that was her job before. <laughs> like, let her do it, for fuck's sake. Also, I wonder how you feel about this. I was really interested to see her after the Dominators described her as the only person who hadn't collapsed. I was pissed off about that. For the simple fact was, that is a, that is a character, that is a character defining moment off screen. What pisses me off about it, right? I don't mind it being off screen. But when they cut to her next, Cully is still up and about. It's just like, well, clearly what yeah, he just said yeah. is incorrect. Like, I, like, when you're when you're trying to get a character across to us, uh, um, like, like we're trying to get like, the, the point of a character, like, you know, like their, you know, their pros, their cons, like you know how good they are, how strong they are, all this kind of stuff. Having it done off screen. It, it just doesn't work like I would have loved to have seen the kind of Zoe just being defiant you know still carrying on you know shouldering the load for the 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 natives type thing you know because I because I, mm. again it would have shown that because like, oh, you can hear like oh Zoe's still up and going and at which point you're like some people might kind of go oh that that small little girl just doing this kind of stuff but when you actually see it you could kind of go do what you know fuck it fair fucks her she's actually standing tall she's standing proud yeah i I don't mind it being told first and then shown Hmm. but what they showed didn't match what they said yeah you know like uh, yeah no i had they had he made the comment and then it cut back and you've got you know the four of them killed over yeah and zoe still going and then that scene continued and she went over and, and spoke to collie and whatever but Collie's still moving stuff as well, so clearly what they just said is incorrect. Like Zoe giving her best Jean Valjean, you know, <laughs> carrying something really fucking heavy. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm I'm in agreement with you for a lot of stuff. Uh, like we like, there's not a whole lot to kind of like for our first companion story or for a first time adventure after the introductory story, you mm. know. She's not. There's not a whole lot about Zoe that stands out. There's like hints at stuff, like oh, yeah. we we get to see like her kind of independent streak when she you know goes. Oh no, I'll stay here. 
type thing, you know? Mm. Now, whether that's just kind of reading the doctor's prefer- preference to have Jamie accompany him, or if it's a legitimate sort of thing going, you know what, what I'm, I think I'm going to stay here because, you know, this is my, this is a science building. This is my, <laughs> this is my domain. Um, I did like the part where she was kind of mapping out the the cross tunnel or the intercept tunnel. Mm. Where it's like, going like okay, look here. She's looking at the periscope. She's kind of mapping it out. And so you can kind of see the, like that gif or that meme of, I think it's a Katie Sackhoff, like thinking really hard. And like all the equation stuff <laughs> kind of goes up in her head. So um, I, I, I did enjoy that sequence. Uh, you pointed out something there now that I already just kind of thought about it. You said like it was great to see how easy she got on with Cully. Mm. Do you think that because in a weird inverted way, she can relate to Cully because they're both kind of outsiders? I think so. I think it's more so that she relates to their society, like the group that was in there. So Balin and um, the other two, um, <laughs> whose names I've forgotten. Teal and Ken. Cool. Yeah, those three. Um, they're a scientific team, and so I think she related to them in a very easy way. I think Kali is more open-minded. And I think she was sort of like, okay, yeah, no, you know, no, you and I, okay, cool, yeah, no, we we can have we can have a solid conversation, because he's intelligent, and he's willing to listen and to talk things through, which are things that Zoe enjoys. He wasn't, you know, yeah, he was a little bit angry or whatever, but he wasn't a rampaging lunatic. I think if he was a rampaging lunatic, she wouldn't have known what the hell to say to him. But yeah, no, I, I think, I don't know, I, I like the fact that she got on him quite well and did quite an easygoing relationship. Yeah, because no, I, I, I was just thinking about the kind of going with things. See, technically Zoe, like, you know, in the previous story, she said sometimes she doesn't know how to interact with people because mm-hmm. of her training and the way that she was kind of brought up. Cully is, as we would probably talk when we segue nicely into Cully now, I suppose, <laughs> is he seems to be like um, a social outcast because of his, he doesn't really kind of, agree with their way of life he's you know <laughs> what i really liked about the fact with collie was that they didn't turn him into a trope like he's mm-hmm. the son of a, of a high-ranking member of the council they didn't have him turn out to be like a spoiled dickhead they didn't have him turn out to be like a kind of a bro or anything like that it was like yeah he's an outcast but he's he, he's he's capable which i which i love seeing whenever you see these type of characters he's capable he's very relatable he, he it's not all about him like he wanted to make sure that the guys in the outpost were okay he wanted to make sure that the doctor and crew were okay he wanted to make sure that dulcus was okay mm. which i really love um so that's why i'm, I'm kind of thinking like that he, but the guys on the rest of dulcet society kind of use oh that's weird collie that's you know like oh crazy collie which is you know get rich kick schemes and all this type of shit so in a way he's also kind of a bit of an abnormal aspect of that society Maybe. Maybe that could be where it was coming from. I think it was just the fact that he was nice to her. Do you know? He didn't treat her any different. Do you know? Mm. Um, you know that, that, that dynamic works both ways. And I, I do love that, like, he is so careful with her. Mm. You know, he does... He doesn't treat her like a child, but he recognises the fact that, like, she's younger and smaller than him. So, like, he's always holding her hand. <laughs> Which is so sweet because like, he he deliberately grabs her hand every time, and she takes it, and like off they go. And I I think I think it's very sweet. Um, like I wasn't a big fan of Zoe being separated from the Doctor and 
her now first like proper story mm. but i like the fact that she wasn't just left behind no sitting in a corner she was with Kali. they were building their own dynamic and when they're captured you know or first of all when when the building is under attack you know she turns into him and he he goes to protect her it's a very natural thing between the two of them um and it comes across very very well but then like when they're captured you know the two of them are continuing to bounce ideas off and he he defers to her do you know and you know there are times when you know he lets her take the lead and you know what's her idea and he defers to her and he listens to her yeah which i think is great um it, it was it was such like when we give our overall thoughts on the story we give our overall thoughts on the story but i think collie was was possibly the strong one of the strongest aspects if not the strongest aspect of this story i agree um two th- two other things kind of struck my mind about colleague one i'd love to know if he will take like a more prominent role in the in Dulcin, the, the, the high council after what you know they're just after witnessing you know like you know their whole way of, i won't say shattered like but they've had a fucking rude awakening so i wonder now with his experience in matters will he take a more prominent role and the other thing is, for a short period of time at least, I wonder how he would have been as a Taris companion. I think he would have been a really interesting Taris companion. Mm. So my other my other notes on Cully, right, and they all kind of feed into why I think he'd be a very interesting Taris companion. I love that in the context of his society, he's not presented as a rebel shitstirer. No. Do you know? He's not presented like they're a pacifist society. He's not presented as a violent person. He's not presented as someone who's always advocating for an army or advocating for weapons development. No, he. It seems to me that for the most part, he's perfectly happy with their pacifist lifestyle. Yeah. He just doesn't like the fact that they've become stagnant. Is his problem, and the fact that everything is discussion and there's very little action. That seems to be his biggest concern. Well, I, I suppose like maybe like, like their their lifestyle is a small bit too laid back because like you know the the whole kind of sense of like oh we're going to the island of death and they're like eh that's like oh for fuck's sake you people are just boring like you know <laughs> yeah so I, I like the fact that you know he's someone who believes in action as in performing action and not like he likes living not existing and that isn't a bad thing. You know, but it's not presented as if he has. It's not presented as if he has this like unbalanced need for violence or for weapons development or for strength or for power. He's not afraid to get involved if violence is needed, even if it's only violence against a robot. But you know, he he's not a complete antithesis to their way of life. No, like he, you know? he he's not he's not there like dressed all in black or. <laughs> Yeah, he's not a total, you know, oh, this culture sucks or whatever. He just wishes they were a bit more active. Yeah. Do you know? Um, I mentioned I love his relationship with Zoe. I do also like his relationship with Jamie because mm. the same holds true with Jamie. He holds his own with him. Like, bearing in mind this is a pacifistic society. He holds his own with Jamie, but he does defer to Jamie when needed because he recognizes that Jamie knows more about this than he does. But how can I help? You but know, I, like he's perfectly willing to put himself on the line. He just you know might need to defer to Jamie on tactic or on yeah. target or whatever. Like, and he is such a he has an easy rapport with all three of the, all, all three of them, like the doctor included. That it's like mm. 
that's why I think he would have been, for at least a oh, short yeah. amount of time, I think he would have been a good fit. All that, I think, would have made him a great companion. And to your point, I really would have liked to have seen how the council was going to react to him when he returned. Hmm. And I keep thinking of, so they introduced a character in episode four, maybe? Um, the sort of specialist on like natural disasters or whatever? Yeah, like he was... Like, but the, the, I didn't. The think guy that, who said nothing. Yeah, the basically, <laughs> yeah, the basically the guy who come in. Like, this is this is the neutral planet from Futurama, just ramped up to eleven. And I was like, I was like, you know, should we be worried? All I know is my gut says maybe. Yeah, like, shit. he literally came in and recapped the situation they were currently yeah. in, and he said nothing else. I would like to see Kali replace him. Yes. That when there are moments, you know, like they mentioned earthquakes, they mentioned volcanoes, they mentioned hurricanes, whatever. In those moments, you need action. And I think Collie would be very good in that position. I don't think he'd be good as the overall leader of their people. No. And I don't think he wants that. No. But I think he would be very good in that sort of crisis management position. Sorry, I had something in my head now. I completely agree with you. Like, I, like head honcho, no. Top, top of, you know, like, inner circle type guy, you know, with specialization, Definitely. Hmm. Uh, but no it's just like I have that thing from Father Ted so that's what we've come up with another mass that's our solution to this problem <laughs> <laughs> that's what he came in he gives big sweeping gesture like your know, fancy robes it's like we'll continue to wait it's like oh for fuck's sake so speaking of people who continue to wait we have our prominent characters in this story we had one in particular up for discussion and that was Senex the head of the council or the director of the planet, whatever title they gave him. Like, there's something about Senex and like his just like smug attitude towards the way that he dis- he dismisses like you know the doc you know, Zoe as being from like you know outer space or from like the Doctor's whole experience with the Dominator and all this kind of stuff. It's like it really gets under my skin. It's just like you know I just want to pick you up and shake you, you know, and just like stop being such a fucking dense motherfucker. I was going to say something that uh, you know, I, I just got to you know, no, no, don't think about like, you know, it's Senex, I'm just like really angry. So I let you speak and I'll see if I can get my thoughts again. I'm also angry with him. Yeah. He is a completely shit dad. Like completely. Like when he reveals that he knew all along what Cully was doing, that Cully was running these like unchartered visits to the island of death and his son's like well, why the hell did you let me do it and he's like because i didn't want you to have notoriety yeah like what you're doing you're doing behind the scenes very few people know that you're doing it so fine and also i don't want you to destroy my career and i was like oh fuck you and like i really like i wonder i'm really curious as to what was collie's life like before because they really play it that Collie was the boy who cried wolf. Mm. That he stirs up shit and then it turns out to be a whole lot of nothing. But Collie doesn't actually come across that way. No. Like when we see him, that doesn't seem like the type of person that he is. So the fact that his dad brushes everything off and Balin was the same. Um, but the fact that his dad does it, that he brushes off everything as you know oh you can't possibly be from space because you arrived here with my son and my son is a big fucking liar and you're like based on what 
like you're the head of the government like be a bit more critical Mm. you know why would he make this up what possible benefit would there be to him making this up do you know and it's like he's such a terrible dad (laughs) like it's so bad oh he's absolutely awful he's awful and you sort of get the sense like oh i wouldn't have minded if he'd said you know i always knew you were running these underground trips to the island and could be like why didn't you stop me he's like because they were harmless i knew you wouldn't let anyone get hurt so it was fine at least then you know that's not too bad but the fact that he's like i didn't want you to have more notoriety is like oh fuck you I actually remember what it was that kind of annoyed me about Senex, right? He makes a comment that, you know, the doctor was like, oh, you're not from around, like, you know, these parts or whatever. And it actually, it made me realize that, you know, there's like, the, like again, I'm not sure if it's a trope, but it's sometimes it's a thing in sci-fi where everyone on the alien planet is the exact same. Mm-hmm. Everyone is like, you know, no matter how big the planet is, no matter what part of the planet they're on, everyone is the exact same. This whole monoculture type yeah, thing. Yeah, monoculture type thing. I was going back to every story and there actually hasn't been a story involving a, an entire planet as such that flips that notion on its head since the keys of Marinus, where every continent or every section of the landmass has a different civil culture, has different aspects to it. Because and I thought that was amazing uh, in the keys mm. of Marinus. I thought that was just so good, you know, to kind of explore like that. And again, like that's why I love keys of Marinus, but. Here it's a case of like you're, oh, you're not from around these parts. Like, is everyone on your planet the same? Could they be from like fucking just over the horizon? It could be they from somewhere else. And it's just like, and I just realized like I think with that line, and I think just again the smugness. I realized like one, I hate that fucking kind of idea where everyone on the planet is the exact same. There's no such thing as cultural diversity. And two, you're just a smug. Ugh. <laughs> just. I think what bothered me about it, though is that like, and I'm kind of lumping Balin in with him as well. Hmm. Because they have a very similar mindset, which is Balin agreed, well, you're clearly not from here, but you are here, so therefore you're from space and you say that you have a time machine. Okay, cool. You understand a bit of our planet's history, but you don't understand about this island, which everyone on our planet knows about this island. So Mm. this makes sense. But as soon as Collie becomes involved, and Collie says, I brought three people, Balin is immediately... The facts we had before are no longer true. You're just taking the piss. You're friends with him. You're just troublemakers. And Senex kind of has the same thing. It's why I wonder like, if the Doctor and Zoe had gone to the city on their own without Cully. <laughs> how would things have worked out? Or if Cully had gone with Jamie, who's very clearly not from around there. Like Zoe, you could kind of equate Zoe with you know, their student population and whatever. Jamie would have been obvious off the bat, <laughs> you know. Um, but I hate the fact that he completely undermines everything because my son doesn't follow our culture and therefore anything he says is wrong. And I'm like, you're a horrible, horrible dad. And do you know what? You don't deserve a son like Cully who's fucking amazing <laughs> uh, shall we just like slide him into the villains come on <laughs> no no yeah. he's not a villain he's, yeah. he's still just a prominent character yeah. but he's a shit prominent character he's a shit prominent character <laughs> yeah. uh, 
So, villains. Indeed. So we have Rago, Toba, and the Quarks. I don't want to speak about the Dominators as a culture, or as a species. Before we get into the specifics. So, I, I honestly don't know, right? Because you get the impression that the Dominators are kind of, they're a force to be reckoned with. Hmm. Just from Rago and Toba, I don't get that. So, I... I do get it from Rago. Rago, rather. I'll explain why. Rago's thing is, the mission comes first. What is the mission? And his thing is always, and he bangs on about it like every other scene. Analyze, investigate, observe, learn. Do you know? And it's all about that. Their mission was to get fuel. That was the purpose. And it's kind of hinted at that they had very little fuel when they arrived. Like the the quarks aren't running on full power. Although I'll come back to that in a bit. Yeah. So his thing is the mission comes first. They weren't there to take over this planet. They were there to destroy it. Had they been there to take over, had had their mission been to find a slave force, that was just a secondary notion that he had. I was like, oh, there's people here. Well, maybe we can get a slave force. I'm not going to put too much energy into it. But, you know, it might be nice. So his thing is that the mission comes first. With someone like Toba, who can't follow a basic fucking order, I get absolutely no sense whatsoever that they could have taken over like, yeah, like however many but, galaxies. But see, this is the thing. It's like going, right... He made the point, he said like at one point, you're not fit to be a dominator. Mm. I said, okay, so like, if you're not fit to be a dominator, like, are you like, are you cast out? Are you killed? Are you put into jail? Whatever the case is. But if like, he, like, when it comes to Toba, like, at points I was just kind of going, man, just like, you know, shit or get off the pot. Either fucking throw him into the brig or let him kill someone. Because, like, you've given him multiple chances. Like, you keep telling him, obey me. And he keeps fucking disobeying you. So, like, with the fact that the two of you are bickering constantly, wherein lies the threat of your people as such? But see, I think that where that goes back, for me, that's where it goes back to Rago. The mission comes first. He can deal with Toba fucking later. You know, we, we see it when Toba tries to turn the quarks on him. The quarks follow Rago. Yeah. He is the superior officer. Toba can do fuck all to him. But it, but see, then again, right? But, okay. Toba has effectively tried to mutiny. Mm. And his consequences like a slap on the wrist and told, can I get back to work? It's like, Today. Yeah, but, like... I, I think that's the difference. I think, I think Rago is a sort of a big picture person. Mm. Where it's like, we must complete the mission. When this mission is over, however... You are being fucking hung, drawn, and quartered. But, okay, so like, no, I, okay, if you want to defer his punishment to afterwards, right. But that happened, like, that reprimand comes in episode four, I think. Mm. Episode four. And so, but again, we have that at the very start of episode four. And then we have two episodes where, again, Toba, like, he's been told, like, the, the quarks have very limited power. Do not squander it, proceed with the mission. And Toba again runs roughshod. It's like if you know that your quarks have a limited supply of uh, energy, 
and you know that the person you're appointing in charge of them is a hothead that potentially may not follow your orders, you need to make you need to make a decision as to whether or not to take over completely and throw him in the break, or allow him to or take one quark, allow him to take two quarks and hunt down and kill whoever it is that's like obstructing the thing. Yeah, my thing with Rago on that right is. I like the fact that he doesn't just kill people willy-nilly. He's literally like, there is no point in exerting energy on this. These people are literally nothing. Now, that is based on one incorrect assessment that he made where he didn't observe the doctor as well. Yeah. And that was an incorrect judgment call on his part. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm wondering is... There's two things. If Toba had followed his orders to the letter, would the mission have run better? Okay, so let's okay. Let's I suppose we we can chart the decisions made, right? Which is okay. killing the three guys that came off Collie's ship. Right. Okay, killing the three guys that came off Collie's ship with the pacifistic way that they live. I'm pretty sure that Rago and no, see again, there's a. A small bit more of an insight into dominator society would be like, are they a duplicitous, deceitful one, like where they'll kind of use people's assumptions like against them, or are they just literally an iron fist like that will smash down anything that gets in their way? Because the three pa- the three, you know, Dulcians would have been like, Ooh, you're strange, you're very weird, like where do you come from? Like just like, you know, fifty questions. And would Rago have would he have captured them and then used them as the slave force? Oh yeah. At which point then the message never gets off the island. The doctor and Jamie and Zoe never. So yeah, like if yeah, if Toba had followed his orders, then yeah, that planet would have been gone. Boom, boom, yeah. straight, straight away. And see, that's the thing because Rago puts the mission first. Yeah, killing people indiscriminately draws attention that they don't need. Capturing people and assessing them has a completely different outcome altogether. Um. On the other hand, though, there is a flip side of this to your point around Toba and Toba's behaviour and whatever. Should he have listened to Toba and paid more attention to the threat that was posed? Or was he correct in his assessment of Toba, focus on the job and stop stirring the fucking pot? These are insects. Fucking leave them alone and do your job. But like, I suppose then like the this this whole debate only comes about then like because of the it's the the repetition of the disobeying of the orders mm. that leads to that eventual like you know standoff between the two, and it's at that point that Rago need that's where my I suppose my crux is that like you know, Rago needs to make a decision at that point if you have someone that's mutiny against you because you're apparently not taking on board his suggestions that someone is going to fuck with the mission. So it's either like, you know what, you're completely in the right, you're mutinying against me, I'm going to throw you in the break and we're going to carry on with the mission, or fine, yes, they're having setbacks, take two quarks, sort out the setbacks, and we'll carry on with the mission. Yeah. Uh, I want, it, it, he's an interesting character from that perspective, because I wonder, like, to your point, like, why didn't he throw Toba in the break? Mm. It's like, again, I sort of have this idea of he's running through the mission, the mission has a timeline. Toba may be going off every now and again and going off the reservation, but 
he's still getting stuff done faster than Rago would have done if Rago was by himself. Hmm. Do you know? So, like, is it worth it to throw Toba in the brig and have Rago trying to harangue all of the quarks to these four or five different drill points by himself? Do you know? Like, is, you know, that's the sort of the balance that he has to play up. Also, bearing in mind that by this point, they know that there's other people on this planet. So he's also factoring that into account. So, okay, well, I need to assess that. So, and see if we have a slave force here. He can't do all of that by himself. Yeah, because like that, that, I did factor in, it was that case of like, is the workload too big for you to be able to do by yourself? But if that's the case, you take Toba out of the field, you take care of the field work, and you let Toba handle the administrative stuff. Because, again, is he more dangerous outside than inside? Hmm. I, th- I think Toba is <laughs> an interesting character. So, from the way they speak to each other, there seems to be... Um, they're the dominators, right? Yeah. Of the galaxy. Also, like, in their own culture. Seniority is very, very, like, you know, order accepted, you know, you have to confirm that you heard what was said and you're going to do it, even though Toba lies out of his teeth every single time <laughs> he says order accepted. But, like, this guy does not like the fact that he is lower in the pecking order than Rago. Like, it clearly rankles him that every decision he makes, Rago has to approve. It clearly gets on his goat. And, like, I don't like using this phrase, but, like, it's probably the best phrase to describe it. Toba has a total hard-on for violence and killing. Like, it is his only characteristic. He does. Like, he gets, like, such, you know, massive joy. Like, the gleeful look in his eye, you know, when the buildings are burning and things are falling, you know? Mm. But the thing is, like, I don't think that there's any intelligence behind that. I think the fact that, like, Jamie and the Doctor, I think the fact that they're effective and the fact that they're destroying quarks, it wouldn't have mattered if they weren't. It wouldn't have mattered if they were literally throwing pebbles rather than rocks. Toba still would have wanted to destroy them. He didn't even know them and he wanted to destroy them. What I would have loved, right, is going back to the Jamie McCrimmon effect, right? I would have loved to have seen a one-on-one fight between Toba and Jamie yeah. only for us to discover that Toba is all talk and without the quarks he is as weak as shit. Yeah. Because I think that's like that i think that's kind of like really emphasizes the sense that the, the quarks are like the real power behind the dominators thing. I, I don't think the dominators are like you know enhanced strength or they may have enhanced increased intelligence based mm. on like you know their scientific capabilities of judging someone's ability to be an effective slave you know uh but yeah i don't i don't see them being big muscle men um, more, and also not being great in a fight due to their weird armadillo type you know <laughs> fucking... I was hoping they'd mention it on the DVD and it never came up oh. were they meant to be reptilian originally you know because it kind of looks a bit like a turtle thing and they kind of have scales on their arms like was it meant to be a reptilian outfit originally P- possibly like... like they don't mention it on the DVD it just seems like a really weird design choice i think my last thought on the two dominators because we kind of talked about both of them at the same time Mm. uh are uh rago man look people in the eye when you're talking to them it's just fucking rude (laughs) (laughs) 
every time he talks to someone, he's looking off in a different direction. And I'm like, man, you're just, you're fucking rude. (laughs) So the final part of the Dominator's attack force is the Quarks. Uh, who are not Ferengi. They're little tiny robot things. Yeah, so they are essentially a gonk droid with a spiked ball on its head and their two arms fold out from the centre chest like some sort of weird Swiss Army knife thing. Yeah, um, their design is a bit shit. Yeah. Um, like, it was mentioned on the DVD, they don't have full range of motion with their arms. Like, their arms, like... I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Like, they don't pan out all the way. They, they only go to 90 degrees. Yeah, they, it's like, whatever, like, if you're... If you're eighty to seven, if you're slightly to the left of where they're looking, you're perfectly safe. Yeah, they if you're can. if you're on any side of them, and yeah. they kind of just shuffle along because yeah. they're little, they're little kids in these yeah. big giant costumes. I will tell you one thing though, mm. they are kind of cute. In a weird way, they're kind of cute in a psychotic, child, <laughs> armored child way because like they're well, no, but as in like before they even spoke when they were like just shuffling along, I was kind of like, oh. They're kind of cute. They got weird, like, spiky heads that could kill you, but, like, they're kind of cute. Shall we destroy? <laughs> uh, like, I, like oh, I think that was the creepiest, I think that was the most, you know, the scare, the most intimidating thing about them was the voices. Mm. Like, you went just kind of, I'm going to murder you now. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, oh my. <laughs> my two biggest issues with them, right, because the design of them, eh, it's classic who designs are a bit touch and go, right? Um, they were never going to match up to the Daleks, but then again, neither did the Mechanoids, neither did the War Machines. Like, Daleks was lightning in the bottle, let's yeah, be honest, right? It, it really was. But my two questions. First of all, how many of them are there? Because that was super confusing. My, by my count, they had a contingent of 12. Because, like, at one point I thought they said they had nine, and then I was like, Okay, but I thought at one point I thought they only had like three or four. No, they had nine, but that wasn't counting. The, so it might the the twelve that I counted were one was destroyed, mm. one was on the ship with uh, Tova, one mm. was with um, Rago, Rago, and then the other nine were in the field. Okay, so that's where the contingent of twelve comes from in my head. Because okay. and I'll get to this a bit in the overall. It was a little bit hard to follow how many of them there actually were because. In reality, there were three. Yeah. Um. There were there's three kids. <laughs> there was three. Um. But it was very hard. And the second thing is, the power issue. Rago goes on and on. We don't have enough power. They're running low on power. It is never a problem. No. We never have a single one of them, have to power down. And even at the end, I have, three. I have five. Okay, we'll equalize so you both have the same. I was like, you know, couldn't we have seen a chain of them doing that at one point? Do you know, like your man's been running them all over the island, blowing shit up every five seconds. You keep saying there's no energy, but there's never any follow through on that. No, they have like this weird kinetic energy thing, where it's you know like recharge and like all the all it is is that their arms flap in and out, in and out, in and out. <laughs> it's like some, some weird transistor radio type thing. Uh, yeah, no, like I, like 
due to a movie that really fucking bothered me with its numbering I whenever I hear like oh like there's like you know, a set amount or you know there's like however many there I pay really close attention to the amount of you know the finite characters in a thing because there's a movie called The 13th Warrior which I love and it's like okay there's meant to be 13 warriors you only ever see 12 of them on screen and it's like there's one of them that the, he's like it turns out like that he's that one character that just accompanied them that's in the background the whole time you're like the fuck was he doing all of this yeah it's, it's sort of like when you, when you see a movie you're like oh my god like i only have one clip left and you're like well okay how many shots does a clip hold between <laughs> six and twelve depending on the type of weapon that you're using or whatever yeah. and like 30 gunshots later they're still fucking going like and you're like you uh, fucking bastards yeah I actually talked about this with, I think I mentioned it when I talked to Dan and Paul about the movie too so on their podcast and it's just like you know, the, the way that the gunfight of the OK crowd was edited just like there's no reloading and like uh, Doc uh, Holiday, the good Doc Holiday, as opposed to our Doc Holiday, um, he fires like you know, 24 bullets from like you know, like two six shooters and it's like because you keep they keep they cut back over the same scene but just from a different angle uh but no, it's just like oh, Hollywood. <laughs> so that's why they use laser rifles because you know, is it like a cartridge? Is it like a crystal? We don't know. It's just lasers. <laughs> oh. So we've discussed the benefits and disadvantages of pacifism and shit dads. <laughs> as well as like super aggro men and you know how best to deal with them throw them in the break <laughs> um, so yeah now we come to the overall section where myself and Trish will give uh, the story a score of 5 apiece so do you want to give your score first or will I give mine uh, I'll go first cool. um, my thing with this story it was an interesting concept hmm. weak execution though I was trying to pinpoint what was wrong with this story and all I came up with was that it was weak. Hmm. And to be honest, the directing was a bit dodgy. Like, the location work, it wasn't mapped out really well. You get no sense of scale. No. You have no idea where people are in relation to everybody else. Like, how close is the museum to the research bunker? to the ship to the target like you get no sense of scale and particularly i saw a lot with toba when toba was going around with the quarks it seemed like they were just reusing the same bit of footage over and over again which is why i was so confused to how many quarks there were yeah because like obviously you do location filming first and then you go back into the studio to, to do the studio pieces and they try and knit them together and no offense to mars like it one great like the, the matchups weren't great and it didn't flow very well like stick to cyberman stick to cyberman <laughs> yeah would it have benefited from having an episode six i don't think so um, i actually think maybe shorting it down to four yeah might have actually been better like don't bother having rago go to the city don't bother having that happen at all do you know um the only way you could expand to an ep- episode six is you bring in another dominator ship to yeah. see what is the fucking hold up yeah 
Um, so, you know, from a character perspective, yeah, the Doctor was good. Like, Patrick gave a great performance. Jamie gave a great performance. Uh, you know, I think Zoe, I think it was a good performance. I think it was a nice, solid performance. It was just a bit lackluster story-wise, not acting-wise. Acting-wise, it was great. And Collie was fantastic. Um, so, I gave it a 2.5. And I kind of want to give it more than that, but it would only be because of those characters. Mm-hmm. Like, the other characters are practically non-existent, which is why we didn't talk about them. Yeah. Even, like, Balin and Teal and Yorwan, like, they barely have personalities. I threw them into the prominent character section at one point, and I realized I'm not even getting a full sentence out of them. Nah, yeah, like... So. It, it's just eh, whatever do you know so <laughs> it's like an island full of Professor Parry's from the Tomb of Cybermen yeah it's could I push it to a three I, I, I think that it would be I don't pi- think so no I think it would, it would be a pity tree <laughs> yeah it would be out of pity Um, I think what made it good was our companions and the Doctor and that's including Collie yeah. in, in that bracket I think the Dominators they didn't really come off very well. I think Rag. I think if Rago was on his own, I might have scored it higher. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to, to be honest, if he was by himself, either um, either Rago by himself or another Dominator ship. Yeah, I mean, there's a story that we're going to get to um, two Doctors from now, which touches on some similar concepts when it comes to assessing people, and you know testing intelligence and testing resolve and whatever um another like future species that becomes really quite big in doctor who it's done better there and that story is only two episodes long (laughs) yeah like you know that's kind of telling like when you have a future story that's only two episodes that is done better than this five-parter it, and it's unfortunate because the two guys who wrote it who wrote the original concept at least they wrote some great fucking stuff yeah and i don't know if it was the new script editor it, maybe it was just timing that they just had to fucking turn something out but the fact that your man was like we have a deadline here we need to get into production and like the script clearly wasn't ready like no. I, I i hate that like it's like obviously like, like in my job I, I I have to push back to our clients and they're going, do you want it done fast or do you want it done right? Yeah. Because um, like, you're going to get two different results. <laughs> so I am actually, right, as, I've to- as I've said multiple times on this, like I watch an episode a day in order mm-hmm. to, like, so like, I'm a small bit ahead when it comes time to do recording. Like I'm usually about maybe two stories ahead. Mm. And if I get too far ahead, like I, I stop and I take a break, and you know, because like, I don't want to lose the memory of what I just watched. With this one, I think I had like, it, I I think I actually watched it over the course of eight days, because mm-hmm. yeah, it was just like, like the concept. I agree, no, the concept was really really cool. I liked the concept of the Dominators, but it just it, it wasn't gripping. Like there was mm-hmm. just nothing that like. Like I've watched, like I've said it before. Like when we watched Enemy of the World, I was like going, oh, "Can I push two? In, can I push two episodes in the one night?" Or you know, Tomb of the Cybermen, or 
geez, even like half, you know, like the heartful stuff. I was like, can I push two into one night, you know? Here I was like, I'm not really feeling that tonight, you know? That's a mm-hmm. shame. Because, like, yeah, this is the first one that just didn't draw me in properly. And I think it's like probably as a season opener, it's not the best. Like I was even going, I was going back to all the season openers that we've had, you know, and I was like, in in hindsight, you know, because like we mentioned it back when we started, like you know, the unearthly child as the opening to the first arc of thirteen episodes, it's actually kind of it's a, it's stronger than I first thought mm-hmm. of it. Uh, then I think the the prior to this one, the weakest was probably Galaxy Four. I'm yeah. gonna stack this up against Galaxy Four. Galaxy 4 wins out in terms of I'd watch it again because I do quite enjoy the concept a bit more other than Stephen kind of going but how long do we have left uh, <laughs> that type of shit um, I agree with you like that what really kind of hooked it was the performance of our core tree and Cully everyone else though just like it just didn't hit mm. despite a really genuinely interesting concept it just didn't hit uh, so yeah I'm at a 2.5 Cool, so not the best start. Now, I will say, looking back over our scores, going back to Galaxy 4, we gave literally the exact same scores for Galaxy 4, so Galaxy 4 also got 2.5s from the two of us. Um, I would be on the other side of the Galaxy 4 Dominator's side. I, I prefer the Dominators to Galaxy 4. I fucking hated Galaxy 4. <laughs> the only thing I found interesting about Galaxy 4 was... Um, the Rills. The Rills. They, 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 were, they were really interesting, which is what saved Galaxy 4 for me. Um, Galaxy 4 is currently being animated and I'll probably watch it just because A, I want to see how they animate the rules. I'm really curious yeah. um, but if and I had to you're also going to provide funding to the eventual Marco Polo uh, and yes I will provide funding <laughs> to the eventual Marco Polo um, but if I had to pick between the two of them I would probably pick the Dominators because the characters like the supporting cast has one good guy that I'm interested in watching, whereas Galaxy Four was <laughs> like the the Rills God love them. They're not a supporting cast, like so. No, and they they only appear in the very end of it. Yeah. Um, and actually, now that we think about it, like Galaxy Four also had the Chumleys, and here we have the Quark. What is it with these two stories? <laughs> it's like... Uh, like okay, which which you prefer, Chumleys or Quarks? I see that's not fair because we didn't actually get to see what the Chumleys actually are like, because you know all credit to loose cannon we only had the loose cannon version yeah <laughs> um the quarks do have the creepy voice though yeah i don't know yeah it's a tough one <laughs> also i i kind of i suppose i gave the game away as well but i was going to say like, i hope that the doctor eases up on being a smart ass seeing as how he can end up looking like a dumbass at the end of this one um but yeah so speaking of next week what is in store for us next week so next week we have the mind rubber. Cool. And since we've kicked off season six with a bit of a, I won't say it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. You did it. So fair enough. I can now say dud. <laughs> um, we'll just see exactly what the mind rubber has in store for us. Mm. Blades. <laughs> are you zombies craving hunger? Or are you survivors thinking the one attribute that kept you alive? Zombies. All right, thank you. <laughs> I'm just imagining like um, the mind robber being this sort of like the return of the celestial toy maker, but mm. just the celestial toy maker and the doctor playing zombie dice. Yeah, <laughs> it's like brains, brains, shotgun. 
damn it. <laughs> it was like Bill and Ted's excellent or it was a bogus journey. It was like, you keep beating death, you have best three out of five. Damn right. You sunk my battleship. <laughs> I said plum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that film was great. Oh, it's so good. So good. Anyway, bye. Yeah. Different phone boost, different phone boost. <laughs> But yeah, till next week, guys. Bye. Bye.